Good morning. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Cheryl Hemp, and I am a member of this congregation. I want to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us here and online this morning. Since 1870, UU has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people, just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. We are currently um, worshiping both in person and online, so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter follow us on Facebook or Instagram for updates. And I have a couple of specific updates today. We are currently taking part in two different drives to collect hygiene and medical supplies for our community. First, we are collecting supplies for the Wassa Free Clinic, a ministry of our neighbors at First Presbyterian Church of Wassa. The clinic operates out of the First United Methodist Church. We are also collecting new hygiene and cleaning items for local crisis agencies through the annual Help for the Homeless Hygiene Drive. And to help support these valuable and much-needed ministries, please pick up a list of their much-needed supplies available in the atrium and drop off your donations at UUWASA by the end of this month. And uh, just a personal thing that I noticed this morning, if you are looking for a somewhat humorous um, spin on Valentine's Day, I looked up UU Valentine's online today, and there are some really some cute UU-themed Valentine's if you want to look at them later. So I'd encourage everyone to look. (laughs) And with that, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting. You will find the words printed in the order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. And now, if you would please rise as you are able for our opening hymn, number 214, Shabbat Shalom. Number 214. Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat 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 Shalom Shabbat Shalom Shabbat Shalom Shabbat 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 Shalom Shabbat 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 Shalom Shabbat 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 Shalom Shabbat Shalom Shabbat Shalom Shabbat 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 Shalom Shabbat Shalom Shabbat Shalom Shabbat 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 Shalom If you would, please remain standing for our affirmation. You'll find the words in your order of service. The words begin, Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve human need to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other. Nardoxology.
be seated. Good morning. It's very nice to see so many of you on such a cold Wisconsin winter morning. Our congregation is blessed to have welcomed 10 new people into membership. So this is a ceremony that honors the occasion and also honors the memory, the work, the effort of this congregation of people both living and dead. So this ceremony is but a moment in the life of our congregation. And our congregation is a living stream of history. Our strength, our vitality, and joy comes in part from our roots. Those who gave life to the congregation from its founding 152 years ago until today. Before we call upon the new members of this church, I want us all to take a moment and pause and be silent. Call to mind the memory of all the people who you've sat next to in these pews, the people living, the people dead, the clergy and the laity. I will now read the names of the 10 members who joined our church in 2021. I heard from some of them. They're up keeping time at ski competitions and so on. But for those of you here, if you're here, I invite you to come forward. Jane and Paul Sizer, Donna Coik and Chris Young, Rachel and Gregory Cressy, Aaron Tullis, and Son Porter, if Porter's round. Beth Burke, Mary Verner, and Donna Gregg. As we balance between our past and future, the roots that gave this congregation life and the story we are all still writing, May we know ourselves not only as people of joy and gratitude, but also as a people of memory and a people of honor. So I ask the congregation to please rise and join me in reciting the words of covenant that will bind us to our newest members, and then it will rebind us to our fellows living and dead. You'll find the words in the gray hymnal number 728. Blessed are those who yearn for deepening more than escape, who are not afraid to grow in spirit. Blessed are those who bring their children, who invite their friendships to come along to join in fellowship, service, learning and growth. Blessed are those who know that the church is often imperfect, yet rather than harbor feelings of anger or disappointment, bring their concerns and needs to the attention of church leaders. Blessed are those who speak their minds in meetings, who can take and give criticism, who keep alive their sense of humor. Let all the people say, blessed are they indeed. Dear friends, join me in welcoming with a round of applause our newest members.
You're welcome to take a seat as we sing our children to their classrooms with our children's song. Let there be an offering to sustain and strengthen this place, which is sacred to so many of us, a community of memory and of hope, for we are now the keepers of the dream. The mission and ministry of UU Wausau is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. Rather than pass a plate at this time, we've placed an offering basket in the back of the sanctuary for you to drop a gift in. You can also stop by our website, uuwasa.org, to make a one-time or reoccurring gift with your credit or debit card. Thank you so much for your support. everyone to join me in the spirit of prayer and meditation. Start by centering your body. I'd like to encourage you to put your feet both flat and firm on the ground. If it is your custom to pray or meditate with your eyes closed, close them now. Take a moment to scan your body from head to toe. The air on the top of your head, your shoulders, any aches, the warmth in your belly, and the seat beneath you. Let us journey into silence with these words. Spirit of healing and compassion, we know that there are many people for whom this life 
is not good news. We pray that those who are poor will one day feel their burdens lift, that those who hunger will be filled, and those who weep and mourn will know the joy of love in their hearts. We know that healing is a mystery, a weaving of hope, an opportunity and courage that overcomes the fraying, tearing force of wearing down and running out, a victory for order over chaos. We know those who need help, healing for their bodies or their spirits, their relationships or their finances, their homes and communities. We lift up those we love and pray for healing, and those whose pain and fear and loss we have not felt ourselves but know about. Hear now our prayers for those in pain and need and for ourselves. Now, dear friends, let us call to mind all the joys and sorrows in our lives, and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please remain seated for our prayer hymn number 18, What Wondrous Love. reading, I am going to read to you from an essay by the Unitarian theologian who taught for a number of years at Harvard Divinity School. He was a northern Midwesterner, came by way of Minnesota, found himself in Massachusetts, and taught for a long time there in Cambridge. Um, If you want an image of him, he was short and fat and bald and always smiling. So imagine a guy like that whenever I read this section. 
he writes, this is from uh, an essay called The Indispensable Discipline of Social Responsibility. In essence, it's an essay on voluntary associations. JLA writes, human sinfulness expresses itself then in the indifference of the average citizen who is impotent, so idiotic in the sense of that word's Greek root, that is privatized, as not to exercise freedom of association for the sake of the general welfare and for the sake of becoming a responsible person. Ernst Trollocks has made a distinction that is of prime significance here. He distinguishes between what he calls subjective and objective virtues. Subjective virtues are virtues that can be exhibited in immediate person-to-person relations. Objective virtues require an institution for their expression. Thus, from the larger human perspective, we can say that the isolated good man or woman is a chimera. There is no such thing as the good person as such. There is only the good father or the good mother, the good physician or the good plumber or the good church person or the good citizen. The good person of the subjective virtues, to be sure, provides the personal integrity of the individual. Without it, the viable society would not be possible. But from the point of view of the institutional commonwealth, the merely good individual is good for nothing. Moreover, the narrow range of responsibility of the man or woman who confines attention to family and jobs serves to dehumanize their self. Therein is our reading.
So about five years ago, a Wausau business group invited me to a luncheon that was arranged so that the city's religious leaders could mingle with the city's business leaders. The topic of conversation went something like this. How can businesses be guided by ethical, moral principles that attract and keep customers? Now, I'll be perfectly honest with you, I could have cared less. I think companies that are guided by ethical stances like sustainability and fair wages are great. We all think that. But the business of business is what? Money, period. That's right. But I was new to town, so I thought that it would be good for me to get out and mingle and meet local clergy and maybe some of the business leaders. Now, apparently, clergy and business leaders were about as interested in this conversation as I was Because aside from me, there were only two people who showed up. (laughs) Another clergyman and a representative from the business group who hosted the meeting itself. (laughs) So we we gathered at a top-secret downtown location over a plate of cookies and coffee. And we started off, you know, like most conversations do, we chit-chatted about kids and sports But business people, if you don't know this by now, business people do not waste time. And so he cut straight to the chase. The businessman said something to the effect that 95% of the revenue generated at Wausau's downtown businesses occurs between Monday through Saturday. Whereas revenue on Sundays, much to the dismay of the Chamber of Commerce and especially the business owners, was absolute rubbish. So hearing this businessman's woes, I was even less interested than I was when I got there. At this point, the coffee was lukewarm, and I had already sampled every flavor of cookie in the entire establishment. But I did not want to appear rude and leave early, so I stayed. And so I asked this businessman, and I said, what do you think clergy, people who have dedicated their lives to studying ancient texts and languages that nobody on earth speaks anymore, people who lead organizations that are literally designed not to make a profit, what do you think we can teach you about making money? The businessman said, oh, I don't think you can teach me a thing about making money. He said, I want you to teach me how I can partner with you so that your parishioners will leave church on Sundays and walk downtown and spend their money in our shops and our diners. I had a joke about Unitarian Universalists, but my wife made me delete it, so just ask me after church, and I'll tell you the joke. Moving on. I would have been annoyed at this point if I wasn't so amused. I kept thinking about that Simpsons episode where Bart and Homer, they nearly destroy the local church when they shoot a rocket accidentally into the sanctuary. So Mr. Burns, Springfield's sinister businessman, he shows up at one of the board meetings and he very generously offers to cover all of the remodeling costs if he gets to call the shots. And like a good church board, they vote unanimously to let Mr. Burns cover all the costs. So the Springfield church that was once just a simple house of worship like ours, it's rebuilt with coffee and gift shops and billboards, a money-changing station of all things, and a jumbotron called the God Cam. And so Bart's sister, Lisa, who by my lights is probably the most UU character on all of TV. But anyways, so Bart's sister, Lisa, she is appalled by what she sees, all this consumerism. And so like a good UU on TV, she leaves Christianity entirely and converts to Buddhism. And Richard Gere is her teacher, by the way. (laughs) So it was soon apparent that my fellow clergyman at this business meeting He didn't come like me for coffee and free cookies. This guy came for ideas. And here's what he said to me. He said, Brian, you and I are a dying breed. I've been a minister in Wausau for decades, and I have watched the downtown churches get smaller every single year. And we don't have Monday through Saturday to make up for Sunday's woes like all these shops and diners. Here's the point that he made that caused me to sit upright. 
He said, these are his words, I give it 25 to 50 years before half of Wausau's churches are bought up by mega churches or developers that will turn our quaint little sanctuaries into coffee houses and apartment buildings. Let that sink in. So rather than cite statistics that you can easily find on Google, I'll say this. It's something you all know. Organized religion in America is changing. Now our church is blessed with relative stability when you compare it to other churches, and not just churches here in Wausau. I have colleagues who pastor UU churches throughout the nation, and they haven't netted a new member, some of them in half a decade. This morning, we welcomed 10 new members. So deciding to join and therefore belong to a church is, in a word, it's strange. Right? Most things you join, they give you something in return. Think with me for a moment. The country club gives you golf and prestige. The YMCA, it gives you swimming pools and exercise equipment. And a supper club, it cooks you dinner. In exchange for money, they give you something tangible. But when you join a church, you don't get anything tangible. Honestly, the church is probably the worst business model in the universe. I want you to think with me for a minute how bad the model is. We tell people that in order to join the church, you have to take classes on religion, you have to study the church's history on weeknights, no less, when you are tired as a dog, and then we make you promise to give us money. And then if that's not bad enough, by the time you take all the classes and you make good on the money you promised and sign the membership book, you find out that you are going to get nothing in exchange. In fact, not only do you get nothing, we then turn around and tell you that actually we're going to need you to join a board or a committee or teach or clean or play music or answer the phones or help with the accounting or hire and fire people or unclog the toilets and settle disputes and protest in the streets and get sober and cover someone's funeral expenses and preach sermons for free. And by the way, this you'll do this around a lot of people that you like to be around, but there will be a handful of people who will drive you nuts. That's the model. You give us the money, you do the work, and you get nothing to show for it. We don't even give you a lapel pen. So why do you join a church? Now, I'm going to give you my two cents worth this morning, but that question is better answered by the members of this congregation, the people you're sitting next to. Now, I've known this service was coming since I planned it late last year, and as often happens, whenever I know a service is coming up, I tend to see news stories that seem as though that they were written for the occasion. And so last Sunday, I read with interest David Brooks' column in the Times about the fracturing in American evangelical Christianity. So decades of controversies have unfortunately caught up with American evangelicals. Now, I don't know if many of you know this or not, but as a boy, I was raised in a conservative, charismatic, and evangelical branch of Christianity. We had our own camps, our own colleges, our own schools, our own seminaries, even our own businesses. Now, here's a cautionary bit. Many people like to talk about evangelicals, but speaking as someone who lived it, I need to let you know that most people seem pretty ignorant about evangelicals and what they actually believe. And here's the point I want to make. I would encourage you to think of yourself as being in that category if you've never actually practiced it yourself. I make that point because religion, like art, like food, like Aristotle's philosophy, or which Beatles album is the best, it cannot be summed up with assumptions. It's Revolver, by the way, but anyways. You have to dive in followed by the White Album. But here's the other point. You have to dive in and you have to live it before you can properly diss it. What's happening in, in evangelicalism is nothing short of a revolution. It spawned a movement that's seeing droves of evangelicals decamp for atheism, agnosticism, progressive Christianity, or other religions entirely. 
This revolution actually now has a name, thanks to my wife for tipping me off to this. It's called exvangelical. Now here on the liberal side of Protestantism, we might feel somewhat smug about this. But you see, Brooks's story could have just as easily been written about the Unitarian Universalist Association, which has its own controversies and addictions and blemishes. Not to mention droves of people who leave our churches or choose not even to join them. And these reasons aren't entirely unlike the ex-evangelicals. I tend to think that American religion now faces headwinds, the likes of which I would compare to 1517, when Martin Luther nailed 95 gripes to the front door of his local church. Now, Luther's act would spark the Protestant Reformation that led to other reforms like the Radical Reformation from which our spiritual ancestors would emerge. You see, what Luther wanted was he wanted the Catholic Church to stop selling backdoor tickets to heaven. But you see, our ancestors came along and they said, Mr. Luther, I see your bet, but I want to raise you the eradication of bishops, the eradication of popes, and we want a church totally divorced from the state. We want a church by the people. We want a church for the people. And so outcasts, Puritans, people who believed that women should and can be educated, that no humans should and can be owned, that creeds aren't necessary, that God's love has no boundaries, all those ideas that are so commonplace to us today are the result of a religious revolution. And our 250-year-old experiment in liberal Protestantism is facing a new reformation. And what comes of it is up to you. No bishop is going to help you. No pope. No tax dollars. That is the path we chose to walk. And so in Brooks' article, he quotes the religious scholar Karen Swallow Pryor before making this point. Quote, Modernity has peaked. The age of the autonomous individual, the age of the narcissistic self, the age of consumerism and moral drift has left us with bitterness and division a surging mental health crisis, and people just being nasty to one another. Millions of people are looking for something else, some system of belief that is communal, that gives life transcendent meaning, end quote. The church, Brooks wants us to believe, is the greatest possibility we have for renewing hope and promise. Now, being you use, I know that there is a segment who recoil at words like transcendent because, by definition, transcendence assumes there is something that surpasses the ordinary, that there is something beyond the limitations of the material universe. Now, I choose to call this transcendence God. Other people choose to call this transcendence the spirit of life, and some of you might choose to call it absolutely nothing at all. And I'm good with that. But on some level, isn't it true that some things really are transcendent? Think about it with me. I mean, you cannot walk out the doors of this church and bring me back one ounce of measurable love. The best thing you can do is you can point to expressions of it. You can show me cooks in a soup kitchen or lovers holding hands, or a child laying on her dad's shoulder. But love is beyond mere physical human measure. Now, I could cite personal examples of transcendence probably for hours, but I'll share a couple more that I've heard people in this church share with me. Some in this church tell me that they can feel being loved by someone who has died. If one of your fellow congregants said that to you, would you call them crazy? People have told me that they have been completely alone and isolated, surrounded by the woods, and somehow they felt in their heart to be seen for who they truly are for the first time. Would you tell that person they need medication? Of course you wouldn't. 
Now let me give you a negative example of transcendence because I think it helps get us to the point. So in Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay, Self-Reliance, he writes about how there is a self in us that we cannot touch, but that it's there, and it makes demands, and it is very hard to please. He writes, quote, At home, I dream of Naples. At Rome, I can be intoxicated with beauty and lose my sadness. I place my trunk, I embrace my friends, and I embark on the sea. And at last, I wake up in Naples. And there beside me is the stern fact, my sad self, unrelenting, identical, that I fled from. Now, I'd put Emerson's rather depressing point in positive terms like this. There is something in all of us that hungers for things that cannot be satisfied with physical experience and material things. Love, friendship, acceptance, grace. You can't buy any of those things. And when you try and describe the best you can do is gesture in their direction. And so what we do in response is we make art and music, we wage wars and sacrifice, and we wed and raise children. All of this in the name of love. And even with all that good stuff, the concept of love, it tends to just slip away. As St. Paul says, love is seen to us as though through a glass darkly. And so the question I started this sermon off with this morning is why join a church? As we've seen, there's hardly anything tangible you get for belonging to a church. Sure, you're going to get some potluck food from time to time. Maybe you're going to get some hand-me-down skis or a jacket, or if you're lucky, some free babysitting. But ultimately, when you join a church, what do you get? In St. Paul's letter to Timothy, he describes the church, quote, as the household of God. Now, before my atheists tune out and start scrolling Facebook or whatever you do, let's remind ourselves how Paul defines God. Paul says elsewhere in his letter, what? He says, God is love. Full stop. So when you join a church, you join a household of love. What Paul is saying is that the mystery of the church exists in the very structure of our community. The mystery of the church is the warmth that you find in others. It's in the relationships you nurture and mend and tend. That is what St. Paul tells the church is. Notice that he doesn't say that the church is a set of dogmatic principles. He also doesn't say that the church is reserved for atheists or agnostics or Buddhists or Christians or Democrats or Republicans or even dog lovers. The church is a household of love. And in this household, by the way, we don't practice relativism where anything goes. We don't even practice pluralism and expect you to believe all the things others do and don't. Our church is the continuation of an ancient family with minds on fire with the principles they embraced, with wills committed to the necessary forms of action and a desire to nurture in ourselves a willingness to choose like-heartedness over like-mindedness. All of us are finite. Our perceptions are limited and distorted. But when we enter into communion with another, we give and receive help in accord with our weakness. And in so doing, we bless and we are blessed through the giving and receiving of compassion and love. Church is a terrible business model, but it's survived wars and schisms because just when we think we have it all figured out, it slips from our hands, and it turns to us and it says, I need you to build a new household of love. That, my friends, is what it means to belong to a church. Amen. Please rise now in spirit or body for our closing hymn, number 131, Love Will Guide Us.
on the road from greed to giving. Love will guide us through the hard night. If you came here with someone this morning, you're welcome to take their hand now. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear, may it lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. You're welcome to relax, have a seat, and enjoy the postlude. I'll see you soon. Thank you.